here's Johnny. I'll be back. And you will know my name is the Lord. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Make us the creature of the Black Lagoon. <laughs> Come back and make us the creature from the Black Lagoon. That is some make me swamp thing again shit if I've ever heard it. <laughs> the love song of Universal Studios. Uh, anyways, are you guys all set with your recorders? Yeah. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one podcast stop for movies, madness, moxie, and tonight mandibles that split apart and make horrifying vagina penis monster face things i'm assuming at this point everyone in the audience knows we have to be talking about blade 2 uh if not we're talking about blade 2 because of course guillermo del toro would make vampires that have those faces if you're interested in blade and this is the first time you're listening to our show we've done a previous blade episode because we're doing the whole trilogy you probably want to backtrack a little bit listen to our blade one commentary it's not an actual commentary it's just an episode then listen to this one. Or not, I'm not your dad. You do you. Speaking of me, I'm your host, Cody, and joining me is the off-screen death of Mike Napier. Vaginas. And a German with no discernible accent, Jamie Lewis. Can you blush, Cody? Well, that's why I have the beard. I don't want people to see me blushing. Also, I have no shame, so it's not really a problem. At this podcast is a testament to anything, it's that. Oh, that's a given. Everyone should understand that. I'm going to be honest, I see Cody fully as a scud. I'm done. I Goodbye. See it. I'm out of here, folks. Scud. You love Scud. No, I do not. That's because he hey, betrayed Blade, to... <laughs> or because he well... ate that donut that one time. <laughs> look, look. We've all enjoyed donuts throughout our lives. <laughs> I, I can't blame him for eating a donut. That'd be ludicrous. <laughs> it's because I'm a Dexter's Lab man. He's a Powerpuff Girls man. <laughs> Never between shall the two meet. Can I just say, speaking of Scud, one of my favorite moments in uh, doing the research uh, for this episode was listening to the moment in the Blade 2 commentary where Guillermo del Toro is mystified by the fact that Scud and Blade get high together. Because <laughs> that was just a thing Wesley Snipes decided to make canon on a whim. <laughs> Which I love so much. Blade <laughs> smokes weed on his off vampire killing hours. Specifically with Scud. They watch Powerpuff Girls together. We're bonding. <laughs> I love this movie so much, guys. <laughs> it's amazing to look back and realize this is really Del Toro's first full true Hollywood movie. He had Mimic, but... That like, he didn't count. have full control over that one. Right, yeah, so it doesn't feel like it counts. Whereas he was able to make this one seemingly without too much Hollywood interference. And boy, does it show, because this feels like a dry run of 13 other Del Toro products. He couldn't help but take a sequel to an already fairly stylish franchise and go, what if all of this was through my filter? This doesn't feel like a, you know, a for-hire job. This is Del Toro going, hey... I'm really into vampires. Blade seems pretty cool. This is my version of Blade. Well, the thing that's fascinating is Del Toro signed on because of 
literally every other thing in the Blade universe besides Blade. The character <laughs> of Blade, he had to be sold on. But this is the Rosetta Stone of Del Toro <laughs> movies. Every single thing that Del Toro does later is represented in this movie. It's all, fascinating. All of his proclivities are here. There's an autopsy scene. There's like leather armor that looks like a proto version of the Jaeger pilot armor. There's bad guys crawling along walls. Ron Perlman is, of course, here. Uh, there, there's just so many little bits and bobs that screams Del Toro. Everything Del Toro is here. Even the cinematography has that kind of yellowish glow. And of course, they're filming in Prague. That makes it feel like it's almost a Hellboy movie. There's so much of this movie that cannot be separated from Del Toro and his his uh, preferences. And they even have Mike Mignola doing design work in some things. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's like someone told Del Toro, OK, you're never going to be able to make a movie ever again. Go. Oh. <laughs> and so you just put in every single thing that he loves. Like there is so much fucking anime to Blade 2 apropos. <laughs> <laughs> Right down to anime jokes. Yes. I'm, I'm also partial to all of this because at some point in the future, film historians will have to look back and reckon <laughs> with how this fits into Oscar winning filmmaker <laughs> Guillermo del Toro's uh, of what? Like, it's just <laughs> sure. He made this one really cool genre flick, but let's look at his earlier. Why? Oh, there's a sequel about vampires and blood banks and is it the same Del Toro? It is. Okay. Guillermo Del Toro directed Chris Christopherson talking about pussy. <laughs> Chew on that for a minute. <laughs> the thing that's really nice about, though, is as much as I joke about the fact that Shape of Water is a huge Oscar winner and critically beloved, it's not too far off from Blade 2. Like, Del Toro has always brought the same amount of enthusiasm and genre love to all of his products. It's it's not like he sold out and decided to make a straight dra uh, drama to get Oscar gold. He kind of cleaned up and just went, well, what if instead of making it more horror-based, it was more pensive and a little bit more romantic? Basically, he just took out, like, the vampire vaginas and it was like, gold, it'll be fish sex. That's what the audience likes. Fish dicks. We're <laughs> going to add that instead. <laughs> That's how Del Toro this movie is. Despite it being Blade, it's still a monster romance. The more parts that really feel like they were uh, pilots for Hellboy 2. Uh, okay. We have the the king with his resentful son who seeks to overthrow him. Played by Luke Goss. Played by Luke Goss in, <laughs> in like white makeup. <laughs> uh, who has a sister that <laughs> he's tied to. Uh in the end, the love interest is destroyed at the end of the movie in a fairy tale manner. You know, it's it's Prince Nuada and the princess together. Only this time, it's it's Blade holding his love into the sunlight so she can evaporate. You mean that ending? I swear, thirty days of night ripped off. There, <laughs> I said it. Big words, big words. <laughs> but no, there, there's a lot of this movie that feels like Del Toro has these ideas he's absolutely in love with and is trying to find the perfect way to express. And we get all of their first versions in Blade 2. Well, Hellboy 2 and Blade 2 make for two fascinating companion films because they are so very similar, but also polar opposites, especially in the way each movie portrays its respective monster. Like in Hellboy 2, the elves are portrayed as like, the ultimate representations of the old world and the old ways that 
society is encroaching on. And like we talked about in the last episode, the vampires in Blade are the opposite. They're fascists. They're industry personified. But like, you still have old vampire shit labeled on there. <laughs> so, I mean, in, in this first, well, there's also the flop too. In Hellboy 2, the king of the elves is not really seen as a bad guy at all. He brought peace to his people and he's just trying to do what it takes for them to survive uh, in a peaceful manner. He doesn't want to fight the humans. Whereas Blade 2, the father figure is very evil. I mean, he's genetically breeding new vampires, regardless of the impact to the vampire he's breeding, in an effort to perfect his race in some sort of twisted Aryan ideal of vampirism. So just that twist on how we look at legacy and father figures is radically different between the two movies and bears both out as worthwhile endeavors. They make a great double feature. And there's even a deleted scene where you see that Damaskinos literally has no heart. (laughs) Like there's this sense that, oh, vampires might have been actual vampires at some point. And he's a residual trace of that. But he's more than happy to just abandon it for the modern world, even when it doesn't make any sense for him. Before we leave this, just the visual of an old ass vampire eating a plate of blood <laughs> with his blood in a resplendent robe, resplendent robe flowing behind him. It's such a, a kooky, wonderful visual. I love it with a blonde wig. Uh, so, boy, it's it's tough to talk about this movie without talking directly about Guillermo because he's such a driving force uh, for an established franchise, though. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? A standalone Blade 2 is amazing, but does it really work with Blade 1? And there's a couple of retcons that eh, maybe say that this was not a perfect transition. The the Whistler stuff just feels like such a weird jump that I, I never was truly on board with it. If there had been no Blade 1, it'd be perfectly fine. But the fact that there is a Blade 1 that makes such a big point of Whistler blowing his brains out... <laughs> It becomes very odd that, uh, nope, he was actually kidnapped by a shadowy group of vampires and held for several years. Seems like such a weird choice. Well, it's, it's kind of odd that even when they made the first movie, in Goyer's mind, it could still go either way. Yeah, Whistler was supposed to be the vampire Blade fights in Moscow. Yeah, he, Whistler was supposed to be at that in that final scene. Like, So Whistler still being around was always a concept which i think makes it an easier sequel retcon to get around you know that's kind of like a classic sequel thing oh that character who died uh, since everyone really liked this dynamic we're gonna bring them back <laughs> and karen won't be back it's fine we don't we don't need her <laughs> yeah um but since they did design it to work that way even if it doesn't make a whole lot of sense it's a little bit smooth yeah i but- find myself really liking the decision just because of how it's handled, because I feel like it retroactively does add more weight to Whistler's death scene in the first movie, because in the first movie, Blade's decision not to kill Whistler and to let him do it himself. Like that has one connotation in the context of that movie. Like it's that last little bit of humanity, not letting Blade do what needs to be done. But in the context of the second movie, he fucked up by not killing Whistler, and Whistler suffered so much because of that. Like That's why I think it's so beautiful that they added the little detail of 
Blade still having the gun he didn't kill Whistler with, just kept in the box so that one day he can actually do it. I mean, I'm glad they brought Whistler back because I'm one of the people that really enjoyed the character. Oh, yeah. But it still, it just speaks to how this film doesn't quite connect perfectly with its predecessor, in my mind. And there's even little weird lore-breaking stuff, like Reinhardt puts his gloved hand into the sunlight and holds it there for as long as he can before the burn becomes too powerful. Even though in the previous film, we had whole scenes where vampires would just don racing gear and stand outside in the sun. <laughs> like, it's not a deal-breaker. If you watch both of them back-to-back, -back, you'll pick that stuff up. But, it, I don't know. It's it's a frustrating deal because we got a good product, so I guess I shouldn't bitch too much. And it's not like they stuck the landing with Blade 3 anyways, but it's yeah. just a weird deal to see how unique each entry really is in this in this series. It's it's hard to say, though, it, what is from a director's change or just Goyer not giving a fuck. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> that is true, yeah. Uh, there is something interesting about the Blade series where you have Snipes and Goyer as, like, the pillars who have broken what this world and what this character is and then having like norrington to a far lesser degree come on and kind of like do do his own thing and bring his own thing to it his own ideas and then you have del toro who's such a force it's a fucking maelstrom of creativity and all of his weird eccentricities come <laughs> in and then go over that where you still have the core being a blade you still have Blade has evolved in the way Goyer and Snipes want Blade to evolve. But then you have Del Toro painting the scenery with vaginas and weird, <laughs> like, aesthetic choices and all these, uh, like, operatic Shakespearean ideas. You know, fucking Nomad yelling, Father is sparse fly and, like, all of these, like, stuff that, you know, Del Toro's drawing in his journal that end up on screen that are incredible images. But all of it is still firmly in the Blade world. It's very impressive how this movie is so pornographically Del Toro, yet still <laughs> is mostly in sync with the tone and the visuals of the first movie. I mean, there's more of a departure in Hellboy 2 from the original movie's feel than there is in Blade 2. Oh, yeah. Hellboy 1 is almost like a sci-fi pulp novel, whereas 2 is, screw it, we're going to be a fantasy story. We're going to be a fairy tale. And just he switches genre partway through his franchise, at least with this one. You know, they decide we're going to keep all the horror elements. It's not like Del Toro backed away from those. I would say maybe he even bumped some Double of those up. down a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And he did the same for the action, which one, I got to say, it's, it's very nice. Because typically, if you look at the trajectory of horror franchises, uh, many of them will go, OK, the first one's pure horror. And then the second one will we'll switch it up and we'll make it more of an action film. We'll make the enemies he faced a little bit easier to kill so we can have swarms of them and we'll embrace the action of this because the mystery is gone. It'll be hard to make it scary. Blade 2 just kind of shrugs and go, what if we just change the type of vampires they're fighting and bump up the horror and the action at the same time? It's a great move for a sequel and it's, it's unusual, I think, that you just have them say, let's double down on the genres of the first film instead of changing the formula. While the, while the first film kind of shied away from horror and it, and it used horror more as, Hey, look how cool, how horror this stuff looks. Um, <laughs> almost more like just like a throwaway comic. 
Uh, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but and then Del Toro comes in and decides, I want to scare the shit out of you as much as possible in this <laughs> random ass blade movie. So you just have the Reapers tearing off parts of uh, parts of themselves and scurrying around and going all plague like in the sewers. I don't want to discount the horror elements of the first movie though, because we do have the what's well, a really good scare, the autopsy scene where Donald oh, yeah, jumps back really up and murders stuff. a guy. That's a great jump. And then and even, that movie was originally going to have a fetus in a jar, so <laughs> that's why Del Toro probably signed <laughs> on. Can, can, may I have the fetus? Uh, <laughs> uh, I guess to keep on the idea of continuity between the two movies, though, Ron Perlman definitely picks up the proud tradition of giving Blade an ineffective but memorable and lovable minor villain to humiliate and to God kill bless in seconds. <laughs> yes, to build up this whole time, and then their final big confrontation is over in seconds. Perlman does last a little longer than Logue. I'll give him that. I do love how smooth uh, Blade's murder is in uh, Blade 1. He just pulls out the garrote and decapitates Logue in two <laughs> seconds. This one, I mean, it's already been forecast that Ron Perlman is much, much slower than Blade and doesn't stand a shot. So it's <laughs> it's more suspense for when Blade will have his, uh, his revenge. As soon as the sword comes out, you just know, oh, this is over. He's going to get his ass kicked. <laughs> it won't even be a flashy sword fight. You know what's coming, which makes it even better. Plus, we get to see Ron Perlman get bifurcated, and uh, <sighs> that's always fun. Our dream. <laughs> I love any time Ron Perlman super dies in a movie. <laughs> While playing a Nazi. It's amazing <sighs> how much Ron Perlman and Del Toro seem to love each other, that Del Toro's in a lot of his films saying, hmm, how can I murder Ron Perlman in fun ways this time? I'm pretty sure he would do it in Hellboy if he could get away with it. It's like, hmm, can I just uh, pretend the ending of Hellboy 1 didn't happen? Have Hellboy be smashed by a giant hammer? Well, he put so much rubber on him, I think Del Toro was just actively trying to kill Ron Perlman. <laughs> really, I think he peaked with having him eaten by a kaiju. I think that's why they haven't collaborated again. <laughs> He was this close to being the fish man from Shape of Water. Oh, that'd be an interesting. That'd be a swole fish man. Just very broad shouldered. <laughs> Just the fish man smoking cigars in a bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> the smoke coming out of his gills. <laughs> Everything else in the movie is played identically, though. Like he still dances in that black and white segment the exact same way. Uh, he is a god. I'd watch that Shape of Water, and I love Doug Jones. Both of those would be very good movies. <laughs> <laughs> but I love Ron Perlman here, too, quite a bit, even though he's playing a super asshole. Like, he, he's just taken every bad characteristic possible for a lackey and amped it up. He's, he's kind of cowardly. He's dishonest. He doesn't really have any great features that prove he's a worthwhile member of the Blood Pack. He's just a kind of big, intimidating guy who's not particularly fast or smart. He's just mean-spirited and deceptive and surprisingly hard to kill. Yet he's the most memorable thing in the movie. Oh, by far. Like, I, remember, I miss whenever Ron Perlman was the Michael Shannon of the <laughs> 90s and would just show up to be bad briefly in things. <laughs> it's, it's a shame the rest of the Blood Pack, and not for lack of trying, doesn't stand out as much. I mean, we've got Donnie Yen in here. That alone should make this like a slam dunk. But it's such a shame his character gets kind of disappeared towards the end. Yeah. And some of the other characters just don't work as well as they probably did on page. Like Priest, yeah, he's, he's there. Some of the other guys, 
you know, look at this one. He's got a giant hammer with a spike that pops out. That's cool. His name is Lighthammer. They're Lighthammer. all, um, they all visually stand out, though. Even if you've gone years without watching Blade 2, you can close your eyes and visualize every individual member of the Blood Pack. I've always remembered Snowman, even before I realized, holy shit, that's Donnie Yen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Del Toro said it himself that the Blood Pack are kind of just names and some lines. Most of what is actually there in the movie, they just sort of improvised on set. Yeah, it, it, they feel like those kind of characters. Like, <laughs> here, work your magic, bring these uh, expendable folks into real air and, and to make them something more than just filler. Which I don't even think is necessarily unintentional on Goyer's part. I kind of feel like the blood pack are there just for, uh, for lack of a better word, the joke of, hey, this is what happens when you give Blade a superhero team to lead. They all die horribly very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's almost a shame, though, because, and, and this might be a separate direction from where you're thinking of it, and probably not the intended focus, but one I might have done if I were in charge. If I were a king, uh, but yeah, you introduce the blood pack and they train for two years to take on Blade to, to give you the idea that they're real tough. They're badasses. And then they go against the Reapers and they get destroyed. But we don't actually see them being badasses at any point. So their destruction by the Reapers doesn't sell how powerful the Reapers are. It just sells the blood pack's weakness. In my mind, if we had just a little bit more opportunity for the blood pack to be shown just wrecking regular vampire ass like they're that badass no regular vampire could stop them then seeing them destroyed by reapers would really build up the situation but that's my backseat quarterbacking yeah blade 2 has kind of a double-edged sword going for it where it ticks along at an outstanding pace like there is so much that happens in this movie and just i think under two hours of running time yeah, but, Del Toro always aims for about two hours. He's one of the followers of that's the, the magic time for action films and horror films. But you, you are kind of left wishing, eh, could there have been maybe eight more minutes or so in there <laughs> just to let it breathe a little bit more and spend a little bit more time with these characters? I mean, three more hours of Ron Perlman being a fake German would have been delightful. <sighs> I love how they basically wrote a German on the page and then they got Ron Perlman and they're like, don't bother changing it. It's fine. It's He'll make it fun anyways. We'll just tell you he's German and you'll have to believe us. <laughs> he was German several thousand years ago. It doesn't matter. <laughs> he was German before the negative connotations. <laughs> he's part of the vampire SS. It's, it's, it's the worst. But as long as we've mentioned the Reapers... Well, we don't necessarily get something to build them up as being the ultimate destructive force other than being told they are. By God, you have to respect the makeup design that was thought up here. And oh, yeah. just the general design of the monster to take a vampire and go, what if we made this way more extreme? Oh, the Reapers are one of the most underrated monster designs ever. I can't believe they only had one head. Like that's all they had to work with for the whole shoot. <laughs> One head and six dudes. That they just showed over and over and over again. Like you fucking Hannibal going Don't around the mountain. <laughs> but God, it's such a disturbing look. And just the hint of it in the first scene, too, when Nomax at the blood bank. And you see, like, little tentacle wormy things wiggling around his mouth. Oh, God, that looks freaky. And then when they finally have the glory shots of the mouth tearing open it's like the first time you were a kid and you watched predator 
and the Predator takes his mask off and just screams at Arnold Schwarzenegger before engaging him in a fist fight. Oh, yeah. It feels momentous. It's such a holy fuck, this is on moment. I, I love it. And I appreciate just how balls out they went with how disgusting the Reapers are. I know. Let's just have them shit themselves when they're feeding. Let's just make them the worst thing that could ever possibly exist. They're just parasites who live to do one thing. Like, they're, they're just horrible. <laughs> it's almost a shame we have regular vampires in the way, because, boy, just imagine a, a, a horror film where it's one of those guys in a Salem's Lot situation. Oh, God. I would pay to watch that. That sounds amazing. I, I almost want Del Toro to just take that design and be like, no, you can use this in a regular haunted house flick. You know, a bunch of scared kids versus the worst vampires ever imagined. <laughs> Instead, he reused it for the strain. Yeah, yeah, you definitely. Even when you, even when you read <laughs> the strain novels, you see so much of the Reapers there. Oh, I'm not a huge like the show is terrible and the books are okay, but all of the vampire mythology stuff is outstanding for the strain. Like you can tell, this has been kicking around Del Toro's head since he was a teenager. Oh, yeah. They all start with uh, how the vampire, how it, it works in Kronos. Uh, but going back to the opening scene, what a fucking brilliant polar opposite of the opening of Blade 1. I know. Of And the, <laughs> and the fact that it turns out this wasn't originally the opening sequence. This was supposed to happen like 20 minutes later. 20, like 20 minutes later. How the is film. that going to work? Right? That would have been... Uh... And it's such a what the fuck moment if you watch it for the first time. Just the brilliance of Nomax, I fucking hate vampires line. Just to immediately differentiate the villain of this movie from the vampires to show there's a true difference. And then that little hint of the inside of his mouth, which apparently it turns out Del Toro had been trying to get into the beginning of a movie constantly up until Blade <laughs> 2. <laughs> Makes sense. But just the way it establishes this is a new world, too, because it's very cartoony. You know, everything is very over the top. They walk into the blood bank and you actually see vampires sweeping away a room filled with blood on the ground. <laughs> and there's the guy telling him, oh, they don't care how much blood you give. You can give as much as you want. And it just it takes the kind of gritty nor vibe of the first film and goes, what if we take this a little bit less seriously? We, we make the feeling here less on realism and more on a kind of an expressionistic action film. And by doing that in the very first scene, you don't have to adjust. You just know, oh, this is the direction we're going. Well, let's hit the ground running. All because Blade talking in broad daylight to Deacon Frost in a park gave Del Toro permission. <laughs> also, I want to point out there was a doctor that for some reason had a syringe glove, which I just find <laughs> to be the funniest visual. Like, I don't even know how this practical I mean, My the fingers scarecrow. are now needles. Yes. <laughs> but I mean, it, it works in the sense of that scene because everything is so kind of overblown there. It's like, of course, that's what the evil vampire doctors would have. Plus, and it's it's a fun reversal of the first movie where it's a human who goes into a blood rave. Unbeknownst to him, he's going to be the victim. They set up this time. So you think it's going to be that pattern. Oh, it's the sick guy. They're going to destroy him and suck all his blood out and set up something for Blade 2. And it turns out, no, it's the opposite. That guy is the worst vampire, and he's going to be our problem. We're going to have to worry about him. 
And Luke Goss sells that scene so well. Whenever they clamp him down and pull down the glove and he looks terrified, you believe it, no matter how many times you've seen that movie. Isn't it a shame we don't have more Luke Goss in just about everything? Oh, yeah. Oh, he's like so a dedicated good. actor. He seems like a guy that we should be having as like the arch villain in, in so many big films. Like, why doesn't he have a big Marvel film? Goss was born to barge into throne rooms and say, Father! With pathos. <laughs> Under like three gallons of prosthetic makeup. Like, he's, but he's perfectly happy kind of adjusting his physical form and doing heavy lifting. Come on, yeah. people, put him in stuff. I laughed my ass off whenever I was listening to the commentary and found out that Del Toro and Goss argued for days over what the vampire language should be because that's how dedicated Luke Goss <laughs> is. I'm really hoping his version of the vampire language was like uh, uh, the Bismarcky cameo from Men in Black 2. <laughs> like it's just a series of beatbox noises. <laughs> like that. That is a guy like my favorite. Like one of my favorite behind the scenes moments ever is on the Hellboy 2 d- DVD where you can see Goss and Del Toro having a furious argument over whether or not Nuada should kneel when he walks into the throne room. <laughs> it's like, Goss? It's weird. He's like a direct-to-video action movie guy. But no, he, he wants to be a Shakespearean actor. Yeah. And like, he's he wants for, to have clout. And he's from a boy band. Like, it's, it, he shouldn't be good. I don't understand how. <laughs> That's why he doesn't get roles. Hollywood just assumes he's that guy. And then he got replaced by Ed Screen. Ooh, ah, that's just that's just a snake eating its own tail forever. They need to team up. <laughs> we get another Hitman movie with Luke Goss and Ed Screens as different 47 clones. <laughs> no, no, no. Bald-faced murders. <laughs> I got somebody's killing the bald actors of Hollywood. <laughs> they team up they make a brain trust to stop all the baldies from being murdered in hollywood they took out willis last week oh he's like willis is like barrymore and scream he's taken out first the last one you'd expect <laughs> does this end in like a who framed roger rabbit where it turns out one of the leading bald actors in hollywood was just wearing a wig the whole time <laughs> oh. it turns out it was patrick stewart Oh my god, the dignity of that murder. Can, can I just make one extra joke? Can we then just use uh, Wes Craven's original idea for his role in New Nightmare, but for The Rock? <laughs> and he's still being driven around by Michael Berryman. He's writing the script for the movie we're watching. <laughs> With his eyelids surgically removed. No, no, uh, he has a fish hook in, in his forehead, may, meaning that he must always give the people's eyebrows. Yes! <laughs> Oh, this became a stupid uh, idea. What quickly. a horrifying property. <laughs> uh, How'd we get money for this? I don't know. <laughs> Why did The Rock idea. sign up? I can't stop it. It won't go away. Uh, I've lost the segue, so we're just going to say rave scene. Rave scene in Blade 2, where we just get all those super weird little bits of Del Toro's imagination of a vampire world. Like, okay, these guys can heal super fast, so they probably are okay with pain. Let's just have one guy having his spine essentially being modified or removed in the middle of a dance party. Let's just have a scene from Repo the Genetic Opera happen. (laughs) Mike, 
uh, this this is the first thing that popped into my head. Does that scene not remind you of the fucking kids in the hall sketch, the search for pot? Oh my god, yes, I think that every the, single fucking yeah. time. <laughs> Where the guy goes into the nightclub and there are just random shots of people doing weird fantasy drugs that don't make sense, and it's horrifying. Every time I've watched Blade 2, I always think there's shots from that sketch in the Blade 2, and then I'm reminded, oh no, that's from that kids in the hall sketch. I want to see someone make a super cut. <laughs> I just cut to that guy in the scuba suit. <laughs> just a little bit of mythology that adds, though, and how weird it is and how nasty. And it's also one of those, how has no one else really never done this before? Of course, vampires would have some sort of weird fetish idea of body modification that they go whole hog on. Well, that's what I love about Del Toro's idea of what a vampire is and you see this in the strain as well like he's very in love with the classic idea that what a vampire represents is the perversion of wanting to live long rather than living well so of course his vampires have just been around forever and are just hurting each other just for fun <laughs> like if there's one thing these vampires uh, seem to be it's bored and even when we see well-off vampires, they're old enough where they don't look like they're actually enjoying their time. They're just there, like they refuse to give in. That's the only reason why they don't want to die. Not that they're exactly happy about being alive. And I love how Del Toro does the most Del Toro thing in the world here, where he can't make the vampires too sympathetic because it's still the Blade universe. So he makes the Reapers of all characters his tragic <laughs> Del Toro monsters. And I love that switch of making the most nauseating creatures imaginable, the ones you kind of feel sorry for and who are ultimately not even really the villains of the film. Well, Nomak is kind of a brilliant character to me because it goes back to Blade 1 and what Blade was there. You know, in that film, he's angry. He just does what he does out of anger and wanting to destroy all vampires. And also he's a fatherless figure. He wasn't, you know, he didn't choose to be born the way he was. He was just made into a freak. Uh, Nomak is the exact same way. He essentially doesn't have a true father. His father doesn't love him. He, he acts out of hate for his own species. He just wants to kill all vampires out of hate. And, you know, he was made this way. So Blade and him are on very equal footing from the first movie. Only, their goals are in in not in alignment, and you know Blade has his turning point in the first film, so he can move on in a different way in the second film. And you could say that's because he has Whistler around, whereas in two, Nomak is on his own always, and it leads him down a different, darker path. So he's always doomed. He's a tragic hero in a way. I never really put that together, but yeah, Nomak just has Blade's hero's journey from the first movie. Right down to killing Frost and his mother. Yeah, and the insatiable thirst that really plagues Blade throughout the films as well. Like, he wants to feed all the time, even though that doesn't really go along with his goals, so he has to fight that urge. It's it's not drawn out to the same level, but it's definitely there. I, I love what Del Toro does with villains in his films, even when it's something that should be as stock and in, unsympathetic as uh, the villains from The Shape of Water. He still manages to make these guys feel unique and give them some sense of character that puts them beyond just standard tropes. And when he's at his best, like I think with Hellboy 2, 
and Blade Two for his villains, he makes them into you know monsters we're actually sad to see go. You wish there was some other way where fate would deal them a kinder hand, even if you know it's not in the cards. That's the beauty of Nomak just killing himself at the end. I I love that he goes full Craven and it's just like, yeah, my work here is done. (laughs) I existed to kill. I've killed. Goodbye, everybody. Well, it seems like such a noble end because he realizes he is a monster and decides to end his own life. It's it's almost a sacrifice and it adds to the tragic nature of the character. I think he makes the right choice, even if it's a sad choice. And I guess this could be compared to my hatred of Scud, who throughout the whole film you find out is just a filthy liar. So you don't have sympathy for him. Uh, it's the other way around. He is not true to his nature publicly. He's always true to his nature. Just he hides that fact, which makes him repulsive. I love the balls of making the audience insult the audience insert character, the turncoat. And then who also explodes. He is explodes. I was just about to say the best part. He just goes off and there's little chunks of him everywhere. But also that little bit of commentary of don't fuck with the original. We have Whistler still. We can blow up this uh, newcomer who's trying to make things flashier, which I, I think is really illustrated by the fact that Norman Reedus's character makes like a fancy tricked out van and like messes with uh, Whistler's work by making Blade's car cooler. And Whistler basically has to say, like, this is all stupid. You're going to make the thing blow out before it gets its next oil change, blah, blah, blah. You're you're an idiot. I hate you. It's that newer is better mentality that the movie kind of goes against, which is strange considering the original isn't always right either. If we look back at vampires versus Nomad. That's it's, that's just interesting from a storytelling standpoint, because you never really get to see the original character and the new replacement interact, much less interact immediately as your introduction to both characters. Yeah. <laughs> Right, and the way they bounce off of each other. And it's only at the end when Reedus is revealed to be the traitor and bad guy that Whistler shows any sign of even liking the character. <laughs> that's the thing that's unique tone-wise about the Blade movies is there's such a almost hostility towards any kind of sentimentality that's very true to the character. It's like both with Scud and with the Blood Pack, like the movie makes very clear. No, nobody is going to become best friends at the end of this. <laughs> Everyone is going to die horribly. Blade hates these people. And the only exception I would say to that is the ending of Nyssa, where she is uh, given. I don't know if mercy is the right term for it, but Blade takes her out of the world of the vampires and the Reapers and brings her out into the sunlight so she can die and maybe what is just a way that looks beautiful more so than is uh, actually good for the character. But it, it just is the visual of it speaks so much for the characters that I, I feel like it's worthwhile. It's, it's kind of iconic in a way. And it shows so much about who played really is deep down, despite all of the unsentimental nature he's taken throughout the rest of the film. It's in the um, commentary. I don't remember if it's the Del Toro commentary or the uh, or the Goyer commentary. They talk about why Nissa doesn't explode when the sun hits her and shit. And they said it wasn't really like a stylistic choice, but just the idea that she wasn't fighting it. So that's why it was happening very slow and it wasn't overtly painful as it usually is when a uh, vampire been, is exposed. 
I'm just saying it would have been much less romantic though if he took her out there and all of a sudden just oh. and, there, and, and she goes out like Udo Kier in the first movie. Like you just see her insides coming out, like, oh god, what have I done? Oh, this was a mistake. Oh. Damn you, Blade, with my last breath, I curse you. I like the I imagine Blade is freaking out like he didn't he didn't he didn't see this coming. Just throws his cape over her. He's just holding this bloody burning pile, like, what have I done? Whistler! <laughs> <laughs> yeah the scene would have lost something if that happened um <laughs> to backtrack a little bit before imagining blade freaking out and just stomping bloody remains that are on fire <laughs> like someone left a turd on his doorstep in a burning doggy bag uh during the commentary del toro makes a really really fascinating point about how he imagines the blade character kind of being like an old school romantic hero like that idea of He's not quite the anti-hero from the first film, but he he's not, you know, the true upstanding superhero you'd expect by this time. Because, I mean, Blade 2 came out 2002. I think by this point, what we'd had Spider-Man, we'd had a couple of other major films. There's probably something else terrible like Ghost Rider I'm forgetting about. Spider-Man would have been the year of Blade 2. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because the whole tower thing that they had to refilm. Uh, there's just the idea that Blade isn't quite a superhero. Uh, but maybe he's more comparable to some of the, the brooding, darker heroes fighting standard uh, social mores and all of that that you would see in, in an older gothic novel or something. He's the romantic hero. Yeah. And it's such a, a fun way to think of uh, essentially a guy in a leather jacket who spins a sword around and murders vampires by making them explode. It's It's a much deeper way of coming at a character than what really is needed in the film. And I'd love the extra depth that it gives. This movie, I, I'm so impressed with how they're able to get away with adding so much more depth to Blade while still keeping him a character who has like 10 lines and gives you nothing. <laughs> and, and most of those lines are things like him just being an asshole to other vampires or repeating one-liners. <laughs> I'm, I'm very impressed with how with how del toro upped the level of supervillain insanity that blade is capable of in this film so we, we talked about in the last episode how blade is essentially just a supervillain who fights vampires in this movie he's deathstroke <laughs> to the point where if i remember correctly snipes had to go up to del toro and say okay he's not batman <laughs> You have to ease up on this a little bit. <laughs> I mean, uh, Blade does act a little bit differently in this movie, but you could say that's part of his character arc from the first film. The fact that he's out there actively trying to protect Whistler when they're being shot at by Reinhardt at the end it just shows a little bit of character growth. Uh, or bits like when they're down in the tunnels, uh, Blade is actively trying to work with and protect Nyssa and Reinhardt from all of the Reapers coming in. And he even makes the heroic sacrifice to go after the bomb before he finds out that it's been tampered with and it, it doesn't quite work. It's a very different Blade than we've seen in the first film. And I, I like that arc continuing and building in this film. They didn't just make Blade a static character or a flat character or make it feel like, oh, he evolved in the first movie. We don't have to do anything extra here. Yeah, I really love the amount of subtle building they were doing to Blade just... Becoming a superhero by the third movie. 
Well, they definitely gave him plenty of CGI shenanigans in this one, so they were they're moving towards him being a big action star. And his various gothic Batman poses. <laughs> <laughs> the best part of Blade. I would say, though, the CGI is about the only part of the movie that lets me down. Oh. And I, I think Del Toro would admit as much. Oh. It just wasn't quite to the level it needed to be, especially... Uh, he wasn't doing himself any favors, I think, when they have the fight in his lair where Scud turns on the lights and Blade has to fight Nyssa in front of essentially a wall of floodlights. It's a cool visual idea, but with the CGI doubles in there, they look especially fake. And the harsh lighting really points out the fact that the silhouettes aren't moving in a natural way. There was a lot of this is this is a new technology thing going on. Yeah, it was apparently all supposed to be mo-capped, but I think they just ran out of time and money, so yeah. it's just all CGI. Which, it just, oof, it's it's not a great beat, which is a shame, because there's some some amazing practical stuff in here, too. The autopsy scene, where there's, like, that laid-out corpse with all those little weird moving puppet organs. Where it just becomes the thing for a few minutes. Right. That kind of stuff is so cool. Uh, obviously they can't do everything in Del Toro's imagination live, but when they're sticking with practical effects, the movie is operating on a much higher level than when they have to rely on CGI, I think. And it's just such a bummer because it's really just because it's a product of the time. If this movie were made in 2012 instead of 2002, all this stuff would look perfectly passable. You know, they would, they would make it so you barely would even notice most of the effects being there. Then again, maybe some of the stuff would have been less practical and more CGI because it could get away with it and it wouldn't have the same impact. Tough to say. It's also one of those things where you, you have to go through the movies with the shitty CGI to get to the movies with the good CGI. <laughs> I'm imagining they do Blade 2 in 2012 and all of a sudden Chupa is just a totally CGI character. Just so they can like put his eyes slightly further to the sides. <laughs> his mouth opens slightly too wide. Exactly, oh. yeah. <laughs> Although they got away with that in Hellboy One by like having a uh, second unit shots of like hands and stuff that could stretch more like puppet hands instead of doing CGI hands. God, speaking of second unit, I was amazed to discover just how slim this production was, even by Del Toro standards. Like it seemed to be concept uh, conventional wisdom that this was a much bigger budget movie than the original Blade, but it was quite the opposite. There was no second unit. Everything was super low budget. <laughs> For the second unit, I wonder if that's because of Del Toro's experience on Mimic. Also the money. <laughs> Probably. But with Mimic, uh, they went through and they, they had to change a lot of his stuff and they did it through second unit that he didn't have control over. So if you watch the director's cut of Mimic, most of the second unit stuff was stuff Del Toro kind of went back and did on his own. And, and reshot <laughs> as his own second unit, if memory serves right. So they just spliced in his second unit stuff instead of the original second unit. And it feels like a much better movie. I, I wonder if that was the case with Blade 2. It was a second Hollywood film, and the first one really burned his ass. It was probably a form for him to protect himself. He could cover everything to his level of control and save a little bit of money for not paying for a second crew to do that, that kind of work. Even if it might have slowed things down, I imagine, because you, know, you don't have a backup crew getting all the shots of hands and stuff. It helped that they were in Prague and no one could reach them. <laughs> also that <laughs> Del Toro is the master of stretching a budget. And I'm sure Prague is, it's got to be so cheap. It's the reason why he's filmed like three movies there. Oh, yeah. The entire reason that they retconned it so that 
Blade is in Moscow at the end of the first movie looking for Whistler is so they wouldn't have to dress up Prague to look like anywhere else. <laughs> Ironically, it's the stuff that they shot in L.A. that looks the most like Prague. <laughs> <laughs> I love the story of Del Toro talking with Goyer about the original design for the Reapers, where they were just going to be the thing, essentially, and just mutate into all sorts of different types of monsters. And he essentially had to go up to him and say, look, I'm Guillermo del Toro. This movie will not have enough money for that. <laughs> I know how this game is played. <laughs> like, like, Let's just pick one of these and just make them a hundred dudes. Right. Del Toro is famous for those little bits of tricks. Uh, in Hellboy 1, when they're in the sewer, he just uses the old, hey, let's put a mirror up so the set looks twice as big kind of thing. <laughs> those little old magician tricks really pad the movie out and make it look so much bigger than it actually is. It's great, great stuff. I mean, in the hands of a lesser director, this movie would look cheap and small. I'm always amazed at how ludicrously expensive Guillermo del Toro movies look, despite the fact that they're all low budget. That's the thing that gets me. He was asking for a budget of something like $110 million to do his In the Mountains of Madness, or At the Mountains of Madness. That's a huge budget for him. Could you imagine what he would have done? It's still weird to look at Hellboy 2 and think, that's a low budget movie. That thing that looks as good as Star Wars. God, oh boy. I could talk for years about just the troll market scene in Hellboy 2 and how that alone should have cost like the entire budget of most movies. Uh, I've gone through most of my notes. The only thing, and we've already kind of passed it, the, the Reaper mouths. And I, I'm just fascinated. I don't understand exactly why Del Toro is fascinated with them, but he's so dedicated to that look. It's got to mean something. And the fact, you know, there's definitely the vaginal kind of imagery of the jaws when they split open wide. But there's also a stinger that ejects out and grabs onto people. So it's like he's somehow mixing vagina imagery and phallic imagery into one vampire mouth. I don't know what he's doing there, but it's really <sighs> interesting. Del Toro's a weird dude. If I'm not mistaken, the stinker is actually from a mythological type of vampire that has like a bee stinger underneath its tongue. And Del Toro's just been horrified by that since he was a child. It's a pretty spooky idea, I gotta admit. It, like in, in Men in Black, when Edgar like reveals the mandibles inside the <laughs> Edgar suit, that's, oh god, that's been with me ever since I saw that movie as a kid. Like, that's just such a terrifying image. So I could see why Del Toro would get that idea of a bee stinger un under a, a vampire's tongue and just have it chase him for the rest of his life. Anything underneath a tongue is horrifying because that's just wrong. What about pickles? Especially pickles. There's your SpongeBob reference, everyone at home. I know you've been waiting for it for <laughs> roughly five years. Yeah. The show's done now. We can go home. We can. Our souls can rest at peace. <laughs> Burn our goose will no longer. Our goose will no longer have to record this movie podcast. You've solved our murder. A heavenly light opens up. We float off away from our microphones. <laughs> Subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave a rating. Yeah, we're on iTunes. But yeah, it's so it's so unfair to me that Blade Two is kind of treated like it's one of the lesser Del Toro movies. And maybe like 
technically it is because his output is so fantastic. But no, this is a capital G great fucking movie. It's one of the best comic book movies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's unfortunate. I mean, you're working with Del Toro. So ranking wise, it'd probably be on the lower end for me. But I don't want to discount any of these films. It's, it's kind of like saying pick your favorite Coen Brothers movie. There's yeah, a lot of really good ones and a couple that are not amazing, but that doesn't mean they're necessarily terrible. What gold is more shiny? <laughs> when Pacific Rim is your weakest film, you are firing on all cylinders. I would say Mimic probably is the lowest tier. Um, Pacific Rim, I really enjoy some of the things it's doing. And I acknowledge most of its weaknesses, but I feel like they weren't his focal points, so they get a little bit of a pass. It's tough because I really enjoy the period Del Toro's entered into now where he's got a hybrid of the thematic heft of his earlier days in his Spanish films, but also kind of the spectacle of his Hollywood productions. Oh, it's so exciting. Yeah, to get stuff like The Shape of Water and Crimson Peak, I feel lucky anytime I walk into a theater and see a new Del Toro production. So what we're saying is we're all very, very grateful that this was the last time Blade was ever in anything. And this was the end. It was a perfect two-parter. There is no Dracula or Dracula's or Dracules. Dracules, Dracules. <laughs> I still, it's terrible. We have to do the Blade 3 episode, and I still have not watched Blade 3. Oh, Cody, you are in for a trip. I, I've got the Blu-ray sitting around. I swear, I goddamn watched like Blade 2 and Blade 1 each like three times in prep for this. So it's very frustrating that I'm going to watch Blade 3 like once and I'm already not happy about it. Just watch Blade Trinity with the thought that you're watching Deadpool. It helps <laughs> okay. a lot. All right. It, it, hel it, it, it helps a lot. God, Do was... what the cast did and just amuse yourself while Wesley Snipes refuses to show up. Or so open his eyes. podcast where uh, Patton Oswalt talked about that? Was it, how did this get made? I, I think so. Yeah, I remember listening to that years ago and just being amazed at all the stories those guys had about this production. Which so, we will not spoil here because that's all we're going to be able to talk about with that yeah. episode. Gossip hour. <laughs> so that was a warning, uh, which is a terrible practice for when you're trying to get people to come back. But if you enjoy train wrecks, our thoughts on Blade 3... Coming soon to a darkened vampire nest near you. Uh, if you would like more Blade, as mentioned at the start of this commentary, we have a Blade 1 episode as well. Uh, or we have very many episodes that aren't about Blade. I know, it's surprising. We cover many topics. <laughs> if you would like to find those, you can find them on iTunes. We're on Stitchers. Stitchers. <laughs> you know, like Sketchers, but for podcasts. Hey, uh, put them on your feet. Listen to us. Ooh, that's a new idea. Every time you take a step, it's a word. That's how you exercise. That's a good idea. I think we should just, we should branch out into that. It'd be terrible if you walk slowly. Oh Hello. god, we just kill our listeners because they have to run at high speeds to get the entire sentence out. <laughs> that's the worst jigsaw trap ever. Imagine how frustrating it would be if you had those shoes on. And I'm talking and I'm throwing a lot of uhs and mms in there as filler while I'm trying to put together a coherent sentence. And every time you take a step, you get one of those filler words. And you're like, God damn it. I just wasted exercise. Oh, commentaries would be brutal. <laughs> no, no. Stop just watching the movie. I'm dying. Oh, you monsters. We can't have listeners who don't have legs. They could, they could, they could put the shoes on their hands. <laughs> That's asking for a lot. What theater of the absurd has this turned into for you, Cody? 
This is your pain bar. This is my imagination, and this is my patent. Everyone get off. Anyways, <sighs> if you would like to hear episodes about us not discussing shoe words, we're on Stitcher. <laughs> you can also find us on Twitter. Just look for Box Office Pulp. And be sure to check out our other shows like uh, Graphic Novelism. You can find that at Graphic Novelism on Twitter. And Supergirl Power Hour, which is just returned from hiatus. Listen to those and many other fine Pulp Podcast Network shows at pulppodcastnetwork.wordpress.com. That's a wrap, everybody. Get the hell out of here. And like that, he's gone. You want me to hunt them for you? <laughs> I sort of got that moment is tattooed to my brain because of that fucking trailer. <laughs> Boy, I can't stop blushing. Cody, you have an explosive device on the back of your head. Well, yeah, that's a given. Just for when I decide it's not worth it anymore. Uh, be committing suicide via Reinhardt would be amazing. <laughs> that makes it sound like when you push the button, he just falls in from a skylight and does a superhero landing on you. <laughs> no, I like the idea that he's surprised every time. Oh, it just falls. He gets up, dusts himself <laughs> off, and then beats the shit out of you until you're dead. The best part is he's like in the middle of something, like he's reading a newspaper or he's on the toilet and you hit that button and he just falls through a skylight and that's why he's so mad. He's at the racetrack. He, his, his horse just won the race. He's about to collect his winnings and you push the button. <laughs> what an odd activity for Ron Perlman to be getting up to on the weekends. You can't imagine Ron Perlman betting on the ponies and drinking a mint julep. <laughs> I feel like he just posted a picture of that on Twitter the other day. <laughs> Probably. I, I'm saying it makes perfect sense. The fact that silly is that apparently we have like an apparition spell that transports him to your location so he can beat the shit out of you to death. That's how he takes out Trump. <laughs> Just falls from a portal into the Oval Office and lands on Donald Trump mid-tweet. That'd be the best campaign I'd ever seen. Perlman 2020. Hindsight is a bitch. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show. So did my Gundam be post the wayward commentary to the internet. And having no further concern, the boys sought podcasting adventure in the West. Many wars and feuds did they chat about. Honor and fear were heed upon their name. In time, they became internet kings by their own hand. This story shall also be told. Pulp Nightmare, a podcast undreamed of.